Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I'm Gashman Rolladis and uh, automotive journalist Steve Schutz, and I'm here with uh, Adams. I'm going to start with you because you are an Please automotive director, connoisseur, and consultant, and you're not looking like some kind of Sasquatch. Uh, we got Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> the Sasquatch package of uh, cars on call, trauma surgeons to find What's with the gear? Well, we I, I'm going on a big ski trip here in about a week or two, and every year we try to wear some kind of funny hat or mask or something on the ski slopes. And this arrived in the mail today, and if you're not watching it, some kind of yarn head wooly bully looking thing with a face mask and i don't know which one of my buddies sent it to me but i'll be sporting this going down the slopes of copper mountain in about it, 10 you do days. look like sort of the modern sasquatch after uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a whole lot of cbd i'm there uh, there, there, uh, we go. there we go all right enough of that great. all right all right so we have a lot to cover uh not just our trauma surgeon heads but we're going to cover a lot of other things today uh I, I did a quick drive that i'll talk about uh was it great no but i'll get into that uh then we've got trauma surgeon safety of course car spotting adams has something really interesting that does relate to a later topic and the later topic is going to be buick and after safety and before we go through buick in detail we are gonna talk about strokes you know the strokes of genius we've all heard about that and Adams has something called stroke of dumbness, which we're going to get to. But guys, uh, last week I talked about how I had a ride in a Waymo. That's an un unusual way to get around. I felt like I glimpsed the future. It's not a future I'm excited about, but it's the future that is safer. And uh, this week uh, I'm going to talk about a ride. Uh, my son purchased a car for a dollar from his in-laws. It's a smart <laughs> for two he actually paid it's, for actually a dollar. He I guess paid a dollar. There's him in the car in Newport Beach, California, where he lives. It's Did he get actually, back? He actually, he should have gotten changed back. Yeah. It's actually. <laughs> Just it's, kidding. It was worth it. <laughs> so I drove it. If you're in town, uh, this, as you guys recall, this came out in the, the aftermath That's... of Hurricane Katrina when gas went from like $2 a gallon <laughs> to $5 a gallon. <laughs> The license plate says it's a car. I-T-Z-A-C-A-R. But, you know, everyone was clamoring for cheap, you know, fuel-efficient cars, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, right around there, right before the great global crisis and great financial crisis, global financial crisis. Anyway, so these things were popular then, but everyone figured out they're terrible on the highway and they're only good in town. And God forbid you get hit by an F-150. So uh, I told my son, only drive it in town, only drive it where you're not, you know, no one's going more than 30 miles an hour. And he's got another car that he can drive for road trips or longer. But uh, this was like a moment in time, wasn't it? You know, it was. And I tell you, I look at that. And even though I made my little snarky comment about it, 
it is about a million times better than the golf carts that we see uh, cluttering up the beach roads and you see them in smaller municipalities, uh, regardless of where in tourist areas. That, that car is a, a lot better than that. I never thought I would say that type thing. And the packaging is just a marvel. I think they misassumed probably at the time that they were going to recreate the mini concept, which is nothing like the current mini. It only kind of looks like it. And maybe they missed their sales targets, but I'm glad to see them still out there. You know, you brought up a great point, Adams. You see all these people tooling around on golf carts, no seatbelts. They all have a roadie cup with a little bit of two-carbon fragment alcohol in there. But, you know, they don't think they're actually in a car or a vehicle, which they can cause harm to themselves or somebody else. And you're right. People would be better off in those kind of communities driving a car with a seatbelt that's got airbags. So if you do run off the road at 30 miles an hour and hit the fire hydrant, at least you're not going to, you know, fly through the windshield or roll the thing. But um, these cars are actually surprisingly safe in single vehicle motor vehicle collisions. Well, I, I uh, all I could think about when I was driving, he, he lives in an area where parking is a premium. It's Balboa Island near, uh, near right off the coast of Newport Beach. And again, you, you talk about an island off the coast. Uh, you know, you think of Martha's Vineyard or something like that. That's like a, you know, 45 minute ferry ride. This is like 50 feet. It's the shortest bridge you ever saw. And you're on this quote unquote island, so-called island where parking's a premium. So it's, it's perfect for him. It's perfect for Balboa Island. Uh, and I, yeah, it's safer than a, it's safer than a golf cart, safer than a motorcycle. So I guess it's all right. Uh, I think the chance of us owning one, a smart car at some point approaches zero. Right at the, right at that number. And if I, you know, I know we're going to move on, but am I remembering correctly that this was some partnership with the, the inventor of the Swatch watch? Was that not one of the, the initial investors in the smart car? Yeah, it was in the nineties when I, I guess, you know, every single trend it seems started, but everyone had swatches in the nineties. We all remember swatches where you'd have five or six on your arm. And then the guy that invented Swatch, you know, he's a Swiss guy, became very rich. And he and Mercedes partnered up and they came up with this smart car. Uh, it's only smart if you live in a city. Otherwise, it's kind of yeah. dumb. It's uh, a perfect city car. It's even in Europe all the time. And that size cars, you know, they, they, at the curb, they park straight in instead of end to end. And it's a city car, you know, low speed city car. You're doing well. But outside of that, no thanks. Yeah. So. Well, so car spotting, uh, there's another oddity uh, that Adam G spotted to talk about it because it was, uh, it's really rare now. I can't remember last time I saw one, but it was rare back then. It was rare back then. And I, I, I spotted this car uh, pulling pulling through a, a, a hotel uh, entry right there. You can see with the Bentley right behind it and uh, fairly sophisticated. It looks like a Jaguar in the back. But nonetheless, it's an Opal GT. And folks, if you're looking at it on the screen, probably the first thing you're going to say is, man, that looks like a little shrunken Corvette. And that is what it looks like. In some ways, it's a, I'm not saying that the, the Mako Shark style uh, Corvette was clumsy because at the time it was super futuristic, but this is a more minimalist version. And it's got uh, a give little- us a, Give us a year. Uh, uh, launched in 1969, lasted until 1973. And, you know, I came of age to drive in uh, late 70s, 60, uh, excuse me, 76-ish. And so these were just used cars at the time. But, you know, when you only got $2,000 spent on a car, this or an MGB or a Triumph TR6 was probably even a little bit pricier. 
But these were rare a little bit back then, and they were German-engineered. Uh, it was built on an Opel Cadet chassis, and they pushed the motor back. They made them with a 1.1-liter motor in Europe, which was, as you would imagine, a dog. 1.1-liter? Mm. I, mean, I mean, that's like, geez. I didn't even know they made engines that small. Can you believe it? I mean, that was like, what? I can't do the math, but like 67 cc's. I mean, it was like, a, a, a excuse me, 67 uh, cubic inches. And uh, But we got the 1.9 liter, which we affectionately call the two liter, probably 110 horse. But, you know, that was that's all anybody did in the day. And these were sold in Buick showrooms. That's right. Yeah. And it was, a you know, it's just a little miniature Corvette. It had the motor behind the front axle. You can tell that hood line. If you look at the hood. It's like, wait a minute, that thing's way back in the car, and it is. And Opel uh, are very good engineers and certainly had been independent that, that day before GM licensed and partnered and then ultimately bought them. But that was a cool little car. And it, it goofily, it did not have a trunk or a hatchback, but neither did the Corvette. You had to access the luggage to the, to the passenger or the driver door, and this car, one one interesting little factoid about this car is those good-looking to me uh, headlight covers. Clearly, Hideaway headlights were activated manually. I was going to ask you that because uh, I had this memory. Becky Schwartz in our neighborhood when I was living in Fallon, Illinois, dad at Scott Air Force Base. All the guys were driving these big American cars, and Becky drove this, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I remember riding with Becky, and I remember just having a blast with the lever like a handbrake yeah you pull and these headlights would just rotate back and forth and i thought that was the coolest thing ever it took a pretty good push as yeah, i yeah yeah it did yeah yeah i thought it was a great car at the time i still like them i think they're neat were they fiberglass or composite uh, they were metal and it, it, you know they were they were hammered out uh by carmen and it is said that the italians invented rust and then they licensed the process to Carmen. Oh. And, and so, so these cars could look like lace work if you drove them in the Northeast for any length of time. But, you know, that was kind of like standard of the day. I mean, that, that's right. like a lot. Of Everything rotted back then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think the big bang of this car was the Volkswagen Beetle. And then uh, the big three, uh, GM and Ford in particular, decided they wanted to have a German car that they could sell in the United States and they weren't going to make something this small. So, uh, so GM went to Opel and got this. They also sold the cadet for a short period of time in, in the United States. So they, they got Opals over here. And then, uh, we all remember the, the Mercury Capri. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which My father-in-law had two of those actually over the years. He loved that car. Yeah. I had two of them as well. I only had the four cylinder, uh, which was, you know, kind of, kind of pathetic, but again, in the day. And I remember at, during some year, I'm sure somebody can look this up. The Capri sold second only as an import to the Volkswagen Bug. Wow. In sales numbers. It was a strong, strong seller. And with the Cologne 2.8 V6, it actually had a little power. Yeah, it's funny. The the Capri actually looked, you know, reasonable and decent. Uh the the Opel GT just looked weird and it was ne it never caught on. It looked like a mini Corvette, as Adams would say, a Corvette that was stuck in the dryer. But it's just weird. It just looked, I, I never really liked it at the time. I thought it looked weird. I liked, I liked the Capri a lot, but that one was like, eh, I don't know. 
Yeah, the Capri sort of had a Mustang vibe going on, but they even they sort of modernized it. I don't know. That, that was a nicely styled car. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cars that were interesting, uh, most notably the uh, Datsun Z cars that you just don't see. And it's not because people didn't want to save them. And it's not because they weren't reliable. It's because they rusted and they rusted out and they people just put them out into the junkyard. And uh, it's a shame because some of those cool cars, it'd be nice to have them around, but they're just, they're not. Yep. Yep. And they got to be worth something to restore them. And sadly, I'm afraid our uh, car spotting subject of the day, people don't really, they can't justify the restoration. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a shame. These are, these are, the, you know, the, the dinosaurs that went extinct. They were, you know, you look back, you're like, damn, those are interesting. The Velociraptor or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, this, this is not a Velociraptor of the road, but. All right, Stefan, tell us about safety. Um, yeah. So you, you were driving around this smart car and, you know, the, the most common collision is a single motor vehicle collision. You know, you don't hit anything else. But looking at the landscape of um, the our highways and roadways in America, you see SUVs and you see giant SUVs. And, of course, the number one selling vehicle in America has been the F-150 for how many years now? Geez, approaching around 40. 40 years. Wow. So the smart car, when it came out, these micro cars, and of all the micro cars that came out at the time, the smart car was number one in terms of safety. Um, it actually got a good rating from IIHS. The Europeans gave it 3.5 out of 4. And that's all fine and great when it's just you hitting something else and what they did with that car was it has an amazing structural steel cage around it and the the english actually slammed that car into a concrete barrier slight angle at about 70 miles an hour you can still open and close the passenger door but what you have to think about is what i've talked about in this podcast in terms of safety is what we call delta v which is a change in velocity so think about you roll you have a stationary cue ball and you roll a ping pong ball to that cue ball, the ping pong ball bounces off and the cue ball doesn't move. You have two cue balls that move. You strike one or the other, they're both going to move. And what that is, is momentum equals mass times velocity. And then the old physics, um, Newton's law, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So even though you're in this incredible cage of a vehicle, the smart two, what matters is, the time that it takes that energy transfer for you to come to a stop. So think about it. You can have a, you know, a late sixties Cadillac that's got some great seat belts and you hit a concrete barrier. You've got eight feet of metal to crush in front of you before you come to a stop. You take that smart car. You've got basically, what do you think, Steve? Two feet in front of eight, you, two and a half feet? inches. <laughs> inches, yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> the, it's the, the opposite. I mean, <laughs> you know, the the smart car is shorter than that hood that you just described. So you're going to go from thirty to zero in a matter of inches versus zero six thirty to zero in a matter of six feet. So you think about it, it's that deceleration. It's that time that you have to come to a stop. So the way they we've talked about that is you have seat belts that help you ride down the crash. They've got seatbelt pretensioners, tension loaders, all that. So when you're in a single vehicle car and you crash, even like a smart car, you're gonna you're gonna do pretty well. Now, if you hit a straight-on barrier, that's a different story. But what matters is the time for you to dissipate that energy. You can imagine 60 miles an hour, 
and you hit rows and rows of cardboard boxes and you eventually come to a stop. That's a real long delta V. 60 miles an hour and you hit a, a, a concrete barrier like a bridge abutment, you go 60 to zero in milliseconds. And that's not good because what happens to you and your internal organs, they can only decelerate so fast. So, Stephon, let me just interrupt you for a second because when we had J.D. Powers, Gino Effleron, he said the one thing he remembered from some of your lectures that you gave to automotive journalists was the head and the 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 the, the impacts that your brain has. Talk about that because this is really what you're talking about. Yeah, so there's three collisions that occur in a, in a motor vehicle collision. Um, so you think about it that you you hit a concrete wall and the seatbelt hits your chest wall and tightens up against you. Now you're slowing down. Your chest wall then hits the steering wheel. Another collision. Then your heart is still moving, and then your heart is going to stop when it hits the back of your sternum, your chest wall, which is then against the steering wheel, and your car is now across the frontal barrier. And the same thing can be said for the head. So there's, there's three collisions that occur um, as the body interacts with the vehicle. And what you want is for all these collisions is by the time your heart actually hits the back of your chest, you want it to be the least impactful of the collisions. But if you're in a smart car at 30 versus a concrete barrier, it is damn near instantaneous and there's going to be a huge energy transfer to your heart as it hits the back of your sternum. But take it. F-150 or a regular Toyota Camry that's got four to five feet of metal to slowly crush down so you can slow the collision down by the time your heart actually, if it does hit the back of your sternum, it's not going to be a hard slam. It's just going to slowly hit, strike up against it and not be a hard hit. So if those are three collisions that we in a motor vehicle collision that occur with us internally. So these small cars are all fine and great, but Definitely, man. You don't want to be cruising down the interstate at 70 miles an hour and, you know, suburban semi-trucks, all that kind of stuff. That's a fine, a small city where your speed limit's under 2025. You know, I drive that thing like everybody's trying to kill me. Um, but most people will see you because they're just laughing their ass off. Like, <laughs> there's a clown car doing here in, in the city. Uh, but, so... You know, it's interesting, right. Steph, I mean, you, you mentioned that about the energy absorption. You look at the the, the small, small space it's got to do it. And it's just what an incredible job the designers, the safety designers have to do by making that car with the crumple zones and sort of to accordion down in some sort of time sequenced event in the ideal wreck if there ever was one. Uh, but you're right. You've got a shorter space to do it. And I, I was thinking of the uh, 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 Jeremy Clarkson quote that said, it's not speed that kills. It's coming to a very, very rapid halt. That exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the things you know, so things like that that make a difference in a collision like that is, you'd rather have a, a V eight longitudinally mounted in front than a transverse six or four, because yeah. that V eight is going to contact the front end first, dissipate the energy down the drive shaft. So everything you can have in a vehicle to transfer energy to the metal structure to prolong the deceleration is to your advantage. That's so cool. Well, uh, uh, I, I'm going to continue to hope that my son only drives it around that little island where he's going 12 there miles you go. an hour. That's where it's perfect. Again, it's perfect that's for its that. environment. Yes. I mean, it's it's perfect for that. 
Yeah. It's so much better than that than hopping on one of those damn scooters and, oh, and I'm not right. going to take my helmet and you hit your head on the curb or a e-bike. You know, it's so much better in that than the other forms of modern urban transportation, which are actually very dangerous, all those e-bikes and scooters and all that shit. Amen. The car is more in place where it is, more in its right environment than is the big old honking F-250 that you see going to the Publix. <laughs> in, in at least in my area, but yeah, it's not, it never goes anywhere near a ranch. It's the King Ranch edition. It never goes anywhere near a ranch exactly. or a farm. Yeah, exactly. it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not towing horses. It's towing, it's towing the milk and the eggs. All right, let's move on to a uh, stroke of dumbness. And, and uh, I love this idea. You know, it doesn't take long to think of a stroke of genius. I can think of the airbag, uh, which relates to Stefan's, safety issue, but also like a turbocharger. I mean, that must, who the hell thought of taking the exhaust gas and somehow increasing power? Uh, that's a stroke of genius, but there have been strokes of dumbness. Uh, so we're going to talk, we're going to talk about that, Adams. Well, and, and, and I, I appreciate the intro. Yeah, this is just, it's just a new segment about some automotive something, a car related thing where a manufacturer makes a terrible misstep that is doomed for failure. Uh, uh, a car that was otherwise pretty good that got revamped terribly. And we can, or maybe it's a feature on a car that is just like pointless to even bring out. Subscription and, heated seats by BMW. There you go. There's yes. a stroke of dumbness. Yes. <laughs> Roke of dumbness right there. Yes. Yeah, man. And I think your prediction is panning out on that. Well, this part, and, and by the way, listeners or viewers, we wish you would add yours. You know, there's no shortage of dumb things out there. But this week, uh, we have chosen all performance SUV coupes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> and, and that's the, the, that is the absolute best color I could find. And I still hated the thing. Is this um, Interlagos blue? What, what blue are we looking at? Long Beach blue. Long Beach Blue, that is a fantastic color, and it still looks horrible. And I can only imagine, see, this This is kind of rooted in otherwise smart companies who did this. And so I'm what, gonna, what is what is exactly, what are we looking at? What's the, the, the year and model? We are looking at a uh, BMW X6 Grand, no D, Grand <laughs> Coupe. And yeah. uh, With probably MX3 added after that. It's like these coupes are so ugly, they and they have to keep adding numbers at the end of it to make it like have any sense of of, of desirability. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and even just just the name of it, you know, with, with the the coupe. I mean, that I'm going to imagine that that some Germans were sitting around hitting the schnapps pretty hard, and they said, you know, we need to sub niche the sub niche and sub model the sub model. And and Steve, I'm going to say that's probably a 2018-ish or something like that. But, you know, and they thought, well, let's just take a SUV for which the middle initial U stands. Oh, Lord. Stands yeah. for That's newer. That's that's going to be a, a, a newer one. That's anyway, like a 2022, 2022. That's a new one. So we take a U, the U of the SUV, the utility part of it, and make it less useful. And then the, the second of the five design parameters, well, let's cut the roof line down so the rear passengers, which should be your family in one of these things, so they'll have to uh, crunch down. Then thirdly, let's take the cargo area, which was formerly a pretty endearing feature because your family and the luggage. And so let's keep that roof line going low so we can't even get a 
a carry-on bag in vertically. Let's make sure we do that. And to punctuate its uselessness, and this is the thing I actually dislike the most, which as performance car people, we should we should like the most, but I dislike it the most. Let's so extend the performance envelope to make it like in the five, high 500 or even low 600 horsepower range so that the best view of its too tall side is when it's come off the road and is laying in the ditch. And then you get a perfect view of, of, of why it's too tall and why it's in the ditch because it shouldn't have that much power being that tall. Just absurd. And then lastly, just to screw everybody up because, the, you know, they, they thought, well, okay, if we've got this, this ugly thing with no purpose, let's call it a coupe, even though it has four doors. So let's just to totally mess that up. And so that's BMW's version right there, the Grand Coupe. Here's what's goofier than that stroke of dumbness yeah. is that Mercedes-Benz saw it and said, oh, my God, no one understands it. We, we don't even understand it. So it must be avant-garde. And so uh, Mercedes decides to come out with their next picture, please. It should be. Pontiac. <laughs> no, the down from there. Mercedes comes out with a Pontiac Aztec. It looks like it. It 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 does. It's it's unbelievable. There it is. <laughs> so the Aztec was actually uh, prophetic in this world. Um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, we we've seen these things out there. Porsche has to come out with one. So they, there you go. That's a look. An <laughs> infamous picture, uh, Adams. You weren't there, but he showed this. I think on the the first episode we ever did because. Uh, I picked him up. We went skiing together. We went. We Let's so me back it up. Back it up. Steve always was telling me all these <laughs> wonderful cars that he got to drive and write articles about. Right? <laughs> he's got these Mercedes, these BMWs, these Audis, everything. So I show up in Sun Valley, and Steve picks me up and goes, "We're there skiing for the week," and he drives up in a white Aztec. So to this day, every opportunity I have to just rib him and this is so listeners this is a, a photo that i kind of photoshopped steve-o it's a horrible looking picture of steve -O. he's in slippers he's got his hand on the car and in the background it says moran and schutz dream cars and uh, it's a it's a white it's aztec folks if you're in listen only Schutz, mode you Schutz got misspelled. to see it. i misspelled yeah, exactly for, i misspelled his name schutz too so <laughs> i i actually told the guys i'm like hey i'm going skiing so i need something four wheel drive in two and four doors and that's what they said. And as soon as I said, I'm like, oh, crap, Stefan is not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. <laughs> Started the trip off right. So, Stefan, what do you think about these these German big coupes? What do you what do you think? There's the there's the Cayenne GT. What do you think about them? I think it are. I think as Adams has said that they're they contradict everything they're supposed to be, and it's like. Everyone's trying to find some niche market. And these things are just, they're awful. They're disgusting. They're ugly. They don't do what they're supposed to do. To call an SUV a coupe, a crossover a coupe, they they just completely disgust me. And every, I mean, they just absolutely disgust me. And like I said, the Germans, when they do this, they tack on so many initials at the end of the car of this SUV thing. And they make M versions and fast versions and, they, they just, I'm just, I just, I can't stand them. I absolutely hate them. And I hate the people that own them and drive them. 
have to. All right. So, uh, so you're you're on the fence, Stefan. Um, <laughs> I, have, I hate I hate them and the people that drive them. Well, I I, I have a couple thoughts. Uh, one is that when one of the M5s, and it wasn't the famous one from 2000 or so, the e, the E39. It was probably the E60, the V10 M5. When it came out, the engineer that was in charge of M at that time uh, was asked, hey, you're doing all these different M cars. It's not just the M3. Will you ever consider doing an SUV M? Uh, and he said, no, we'll never have that. And sure enough, uh, number one, they did come out with the M cars. And number two, that guy retired, uh, probably not coincidentally, when they came out with the X5M and then the X6M. But... Uh, what I would say is, number one, the performance of these vehicles, especially the M cars uh, and the AMG, GLE, and the GLC, uh, the performance of those cars is better than the M5 from 20 years ago. It'll go around a racetrack faster. It handles really well. I've driven a number of them. And if you were to blindfold either one of you guys and you get into this car, and get driven around a track, you would not be able to tell, is it the sedan or is it the SUV? It's a triumph of engineering and also software. So I kind of like them because you sit a little bit higher. I don't hate them. They're not the Antichrist because um, I, when you drive them, they're really great. It, it drives, the X6 is on the same, pl it's like the Matrix. It's on the same platform as the X5 and yet it drives differently. They change the software and the, and the, the suspension. I am not so negative as I used to be. I think they sit you up a little bit higher and they give you equivalent performance from an old AMG or M car. So I don't think this is all said for the man that wants a G wagon, right? <laughs> I, of course I want a G wagon. So I don't think and that bad. I, think I am less now. Do I think they're great looking? No, I don't. But if you think it's, it's that's subjective, but as far as objective driving goes, I think it's okay. You know, to me, to me, and 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 I get it. You know, the engineering is unbelievable, and and uh, I was loaned a, a, a an M series SUV one time, not the coupe, and I just could not believe how well planted and sure footed the thing was. Even though I'm sitting, you know, two and a half or three feet up in the air looking down, I just can't believe it. I mean, higher than the normal vehicle. But you know, it's one of those things. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. Yeah, it. I, I I'm going to say this. I I was very offended and disgusted when the first X6 came out. I was angry, and now I'm kind of maybe I'm just mellowing with age. I'm like, oh, who cares? I know they're making money because you have the same platform and you're you're increasing sales probably by forty percent. Uh, people who wouldn't buy an X5, but now they're going to buy an X6. So, um, uh, would I call it a stroke of dumbness? Uh, when they came out, I sure would. Now I'm kind of ambivalent. And uh, so I guess that's two and a half negative votes. How about that? <laughs> I guess there's a segue. They've sold more of these ugly ass coupes than Buick probably sold. Oh, yeah. In the U.S. Oh, as a segue. Yes. Oh, that's good. All right. With that segue, uh, we think Buick is dying. Buick is, is kind of almost a zombie brand. And we gave the zombie brand of uh, Jaguar a send off a couple of weeks ago. Interestingly, and I would say hashtag rental fleet, but interestingly, in 2023, Jaguar uh, Buick sales were up like 40%. Um, so they're not dead, but 
I would say that they all went to rental fleets, number one. And then number two, uh, it says everything you need to know when GM says to the dealers, hey, you guys got to start selling BEVs. And if you don't, we're going to buy you out. And more than 50% of Buick dealers take the buyout. That means they want to get out of the Buick business. And that means they're dying. So we're going to say they're dying. They had some highlights and you know, racing, Stevan, you're going to talk about that. But but before that, Adams is going to talk about some of the engineering highlights. So let's let's give Buick a little bit of a send off, give them a little bit of love before they die. Let's give a little Buick love. And one thing to mention about the big sales increase, let's keep in mind that aside from just the rental fleets, um, when they sold over 1 million vehicles, which was a huge record for them, 818,000 of them were in China. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've, they've got a rather skewed uh, bit of stats there. No, uh, it's, it's the U.S. though. It, it, it's U.S. sales only. It was okay. Like 80%. Okay, cool. The uh, brief re- recap would be uh, uh, Buick was started by a Scotsman, um, which is the reason for the little Scottish uh, coats of arms that make up the, their logo, the three flags. David Dunbar Buick, uh, 1899. And that makes them one of the top 10 oldest, depending on how you look at it, because some people started off as buggy makers and they still call themselves uh, car maker. Uh, but one of the top 10 oldest uh, brands out there. And uh, our friends over at Opel that we mentioned uh, earlier, actually, we started in 1853, so they're even a bit older. They started off with sort of an agricultural slant. Uh, uh, Mr. Buick was a decent engineer. He wanted uh, engines that would uh, be used on the farm, you know, to power certain things. And he, uh, in the era that all motors had overhead um or excuse me, side valve designs, Mr. Buick came up with the overhead valve design, the one that is still in use wow. today. You say, oh, well, that's different than an overhead cam. It's still based on it. And so his overhead uh, valve design was just a, a landmark of engineering, more power, fewer moving parts, et cetera. And, you know, like a lot of these guys back in the day, they had these huge ups and downs. You know, he would be selling pretty good, then he'd be flirting with bankruptcy, then selling pretty good, somebody'd bail him out, and finally he gets bailed out by um by, by GM. And at the time, and there you go, uh, right there, that's a 1908, uh in the 1909 race car. And that's a Buick powered car uh that won at Indy. And wow. you can tell it's an inline four, one of those huge honking inline fours that they had back then. And so by the time that they, they get on over into GM, and I'll kind of run through this because really the golden era is what Steph's going to talk about when they got into performance pretty heavy. Uh, but before that, there's uh, they, they had a, a show car uh, called the uh, Wildcat 2 Concept. Steph, you may have. There it oh, is. Yeah. Look at that unit. Yeah. And that's a Harley Earl design, as you can almost tell. It almost has his signature on it. But it's got, um, folks, once again, if you're in listen only, you got to look at this thing, uh, 1954, and it's a metal car uh, that resembles sort of a Corvette in a way, but just so, I mean, it looks like a customized car, and it had the um, the Buick Nailhead uh, V8, that's a 220-horse motor, which was no slouch in the day, especially considering that the Corvette Blue Flame 6 uh, had a measly 150, and that was on its best day. Uh, but GM considered uh, Buick a bit of a golden child, and they were second only in prestige to Cadillac for many, many years, and they they did a lot of things right. Uh, going on down, we'll skip ahead about 10 years to the next design house masterpiece by oh, Bill yeah. Mitchell. 
Look, look, just look. Yes, yeah, say, give your accolades there. I mean, look. I love this car. That says we got a Buick. We got a Riviera here. What year? I like the next year with the closing headlights, but these I just thought these were sixty-eight. I think sixty-seven, uh, sixty-eight. That's a, that's a sixty-three right there, and I agree with you, Steph. The clamshell headlights were just crazy cool. But that's Bill Mitchell. Now think about this, folks. Nineteen sixty-three. Bill Mitchell launches the C two Corvette and mm. this Buick wow. Riviera in the same year. So if you don't think that man deserves to be listed right up there with Pininfarina and the other great designers that we know of, I mean, I, I don't know why he would not. But that's a gorgeous car, and you showed the interior was kind of, you know, it that's was a two first. two Hall of Fame designs by one guy in one year seriously exactly yes. hall of fame designs that's that's well said and you know he was playing with some scalloping there in the rear as if it cooled the rear brakes and stuff and of course gm wouldn't spring to let him really loose but he did a lot with what he had to work with and this car at the end of its uh reign uh in in this body style had a 455 uh cubic inch 360 horse dual quad motor i mean it was <laughs> It was a hot dog. Show the, show the interior real quick, and then we'll move on to that V8. But that's mm. real wood. That is not just brown coloring in the in the console. That's I really, did not know that. Wow, isn't that something? That is real, gorgeous. Real wood. Uh, and so what that, is that thing on the dash, Adams? Uh, that, that, what it, is th this thing right there? That Steve, do you know? I, I know what that is. It just is. I have no idea. I don't know. Just, the listeners, there's this. It looks like a, a little mini torpedo on the middle of the dash looking out the front. I have no idea what that is. It's an auto eye, which would uh, alert you to oncoming headlights uh, to tell you to dim yours if they were on bright. Wow. How about that? Mm. that is, it, it looks really cool up there. It's, it does. It's almost, as cool, it's almost as cool as a tachometer on the hood. I mean, it almost. Is. And it's more useful than Porsche's clock on the dash. So. <laughs> you can imagine, you know, you look at the exterior, which looks so cool. And, you know, you can imagine, and then you look at the inside, you can imagine a CEO or a very successful for business, uh, a small business person or somebody who's just very prosperous. This is what you would want. And people in town yep. would notice you and you'd get in the car and you'd feel that wood and look at that interior. You'd feel great about yourself. Um, you'd feel like you'd accomplish something. This must have been a very desirable car. You know, I can remember seeing them, you know, just like like rarely on the streets when I was like very young when this came out. But even at that super young age, I remember going, God, that thing's good looking. And then you'd see them around. I had a friend of mine who owned one when we were both 18 and he was already into older cars. It was interesting, but it was, in fact, it was gold. I think that's called like fire mist gold or something. It, it was gold and it was just like that. And it was just fabulous. People stared at it then. You know, it was 12 years old and people still stared at it. Well, the last big engineering thing that Buick did and gave, gave to the world was his next cut, cutaway drawing of the all aluminum V8 in 1961. That's a 215 cubic inch uh the Brits and Europeans knew it better as the 3.5 liter aluminum V8. Mm, yep. GM gave up on it because it had a little bit of problem with cooling. The oil passages were maybe a little bit too small for our thick oil. 
and they just gave up on it and everybody wanted a stonking V8. So they licensed that motor in 1965 to British Leyland that put it in the MG V8, the Triumph TR8, the Rover 3500, the TVR, uh, the Morgan Plus 8, and lest we forget the Land Rover V8 that they used for 37 yep. straight years. Wow. <laughs> I did not Rovers. know that. Yeah, Range yep. Rovers and the occasional Land Rover, but but this is a Range Rover engine. Yep. Until uh, 2004, they continued to use that motor. They, you know, they kept punching it out and punching it out and punching it out. And, you know, they basically perfected this already fantastic design because that motor right there weighed 150 pounds less Mm. than the four cylinders they were using at the time. Wow. Oh my goodness. So yay Buick. And that was my little, little run up to when they really got strong. Oh, oh one last thing. Buick sold 775,000 cars in 1955. Yeah. And wow. then they sold about uh, half a million in 1975. And in 2021, they sold 103,000. Yeah. Yeah, which is right. All right, Stefan, talk about the there what they did. They had a heyday, so uh, yeah. So we're going to well. yeah. So you know, following along that V eight, you so, love a pace car, don't you, Steph? I love a pace uh. car. So, um, you know, Buick was always kind of the grandma's grocery getter kind of car. Car, you know, they had some cool cars, but in general, it's a grandma driving one. You know, today there's three. SUVs from Buick, the Encore, the Envision, the Enclave, and in 2024, the Invista. Uh, Steve, I mentioned they're going electric by 2030. They don't even have a proposed car to look at pictures. It's going to be all electric. So it's kind of like GM is internally in my mind giving up on them, which is kind of sad to me. But, you know, division manager Lloyd Russ, he wanted to change the image of Buick from being the cushy doctor's cars, which was the Riviera, to something more youthful and exciting. So they really pushed hard on um, the chief engineer, Don Runkle. We've got to beat the Corvette. So we've got to have something fast. So they started working with the V6 engine and they turbocharged it. And this was the pace car of 1976, a century with this new turbo V6 engine. And this engine just kicked ass at the time. I mean, it was, it had a lot of promise. So th they were starting to working on this V6 and this V6 will later show up in the GNX that we're going to talk about later in the show. This is the origin. This is like the first prototype of this engine that showed up in uh, 1976, came up later. Well, there were some rule changes in NASCAR. And what's interesting to know is that NASCAR, the, the championship was called the Grand National. Before 1971, NASCAR started selling the rights and it became the Winston Cup. So the Grand National name was picked up by Buick. And um, so when they changed the rules, they changed the wheelbase and the shape of the car. And it happened to be that the Buick Regal, which is like the Cosmobile, I mean, the Oldsmobile Cutlass, the Monte Carlo, the Cordoba, the, the Regal aerodynamics really worked with that new body size. So um, the Buick Regal and its, Shape was number nine all-time NASCAR winners. And they won their first championship in 1981 with Mr. Boogity, Boogity, Boogity. Oh, yeah. Harold Waltrip himself. 
And he won that um, championship with a point margin of 53 points over Bobby Allison. So let me pull up. Here he is in the Mountain Dew uh, car, the number 11. I remember that. I yeah, do and, remember that. I'd forgotten it was a Buick. Yes, it was a Buick Regal. And then he won the championship again in 1982. Then Bobby Allison turned around and won it in 1983 in a Regal. And then Richard Petty won the 1981 Daytona 500 in a Regal. So, you know, race on Sunday, sell on Monday. And Buick was really into it. What's interesting was that they chose to continue to work on this V6 turbocharged with Garrett turbochargers rather than working on the V8. They saw something about the lighter V6. So they really kept working on this G6, I mean, on, on the V6 turbocharged. And what, in it, what they ended up with, they, they had these cars um, the Grand National cars, they were all black. Yeah, it was kind of like the really early model Ford. You got one Jeff, choice of color as black. Jeff, let me interrupt half a second. Now, on the NASCAR cars, they were running V8s, correct? They weren't doing that. That wasn't the turbo V6. No, these were V8s. V8s. So okay. they're running V6s in the minor series, was now called the Bush series, but they were running okay. V8s. Okay. My recollection, Stefan, is that the Grand National did have different colors, but the GNX, which was kind of the super Grand National. Yes. That, that was the one that was that was, one was all black. Okay, you correct me. I'm not the detail guy. I appreciate that. <laughs> and um, so, that, so they really did well with this car. And then when they came up with the idea of these cars, you know, they wanted a fast GM production car. They wanted to create a limited production Grand National that would, quote, achieve a memorable place in the history of high-performance automobiles, one that car collectors will want to own that one that automotive riders will not forget. And that that really sums up the GNX, which is what this all culminated in. And the GNX stands for Grand National Experimental. It was a modified Grand National, Steve-O talked about. And it's really the rarest of the rarest. It's the black swan of these General Motors cars in my mind. It had a Garrett turbocharged V6, 300 horsepower, 400 torque. And at the time... It was the fastest production car in the world with a 0 to 64.7 briefly until the wow. Kuntok came out. Wow. And the Kuntok beat it. And GM enlisted help because they had this monster motor. They asked McLaren and American Specialty Cars to help them work on the engine suspension. And the end of the glory, the peak of Buick was this car that called the GNX. And um, yeah, I remember nice. seeing one of these cars here in the car. I, I was like, you know, I was, this is like, um, I was in high school and I was like, oh my God, this thing is just mean. It's nasty, but it's also the car that old people were driving Regals, you know? So it's, it's weird to see this grandma grocery getter done up all nasty, but I loved it then. And I still love it. And I think it's, I always loved this, the Monte Carlos, the Regals, the Cutlasses. I love this era of General Motors, these, these two-door, five-passenger cars with these monstrous doors. I just like it. When a coupe was a coupe. This is a coupe. This is absolutely, you take a four-door car, turn it into two-door, and make the, two, make the, 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 the two doors two-thirds the length of, the, of when it was a four-door. I mean, yeah. so really... <laughs> yeah. um, I love these cars. I do too. Well, the, so good. the arc of Buick is uh, 
doctor's car is what it was known as in the 50s and then the 60s they kind of lost their way but they 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 went into muscle cars and they made good muscle cars but they weren't they weren't regarded the same as ford or, or chevy they were you know they were like muscle cars for older people which is not what you want to be in the 70s into the early 80s they became you know all the doctors and all the lawyers that drove their cars in the 50s were now in their 70s and they were the customers so they went old and they didn't want to and it was Lloyd Royce and Buick saying, hey, we want to be relevant for younger people. You know, the old saying, uh, you can sell a young man, uh, you can sell an old man a young man's car, but you can't sell a young man an old man's car. And that was that was their problem. So, Stefan, you're absolutely right. That Turbo V6, the Grand National, the GNX, but they also had the T-Type. They had all their cars were like a T-Type. So they mm -hmm. really went after younger buyers. And it worked. It was working. And then they, they hit this brick wall. In 1990, there was a big shakeup in GM leadership, and they went from trying to make these, trying to make Buick youthful and a lot of other good things they were doing, and they said, we're just going to go trucks and SUVs, and the party was over. Yep. That was a stroke of dumbness in and of itself, and I tell you, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, lo looking at that car, and and somebody in internet land is going to correct me, but I feel like, and I'm I'm not sure, and and I don't, you know, this is why why it's fun to have this stuff on on online and just have this podcast among three car fans, is that I think the Grand National only came in black and maybe dark gray. I don't think dark. there was a white one. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I could be wrong, yep. and again, I, you know, I, I'm not, but those two colors, yep. Uh, the GNX right there, the one we're looking at, has the punched out flares uh, that I think are, I don't even think they're metal. I think they may be some composite. It's got the great looking side vents, so you know it's a GNX. And I think those are maybe MSW wheels that look like this, uh, a BBS, but they're a mesh type wheel. I mean, that car just had tons of eye appeal. I owned an 87 T-Type. That was owned by an older man. He was exactly who you just described. I mean, he kept with all his gas fill-ups and everything. It was one of those cars. Swept it out all the time. Vacuumed it. I mean, it, it was just mint. I loved that car. And it just was a, it was a T-type. It had sort of the cyclone wheels, not the best looking wheel. And then I had a Grand National that somebody had ridden pretty hard. And it was fun. And, you know, it's fun, you know, doing the stoplight thing. And everybody wanted to race you. But I'm telling you, for a performance car that was as comfortable a car as you would ever take on a long trip and have that much performance. You know, that really was the it was the heyday. It was the last hurrah. And Buick now is just sad. So uh yeah, it's pretty cool, Stefan. That was that was really the the era. But uh Adam's very cool that you had one. I, I love that. So um we're running out of we're time. Going to hundred over 150 cars. It's it's hard to find one Adams is not owned. Ah, good point. Good point. There's a there's a few left, and I'm hurrying to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we decided, just like we did with Jaguar, let's come with our, our favorite Buick of all time. And I'm going to go first because mine is kind of lame, but it's not lame. It's um, not lame. So I'm going to go with my first one, and I, I'm doing this for a reason. And I, I think we'll end with with Adams. So here it is. It's the 1998 Buick. Uh, Park Avenue. Give me and, a break, dude. I mean, come on. I kind of get it. I, I'm, I'm interested let me in your, your support of this. Yeah, let you better get my, Let me save my piece. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, this is a car that's designed for older people. On the other hand, this is Buick 
successfully at a time when the company was really focused on pickups and SUVs, people at Buick decided and they successfully created this car that would compete with the Lexus. And the Lexus LS400 at this moment was the a luxury car that everybody wanted. And this Buick legitimately competed with them, not because it had a V8, because it didn't, but because it had this 3800, it was called this mm-hmm. V6 that they started making, not coincidentally, in 1961, just like their V8. They actually ditched the, v- the V8 because they had this V6. And this V8 or V6 was made continuously into the 2000s from 1961. It was a great engine. Hello, this car and this engine had no problems. This engine would never break down. The inside of this car had no rattles. This legitimately could compete. And people just didn't know that it was as good as the LS400, but it was. You talk to any mechanic. I'm going to start with the car wizard that we all know from Hoovy's mm-hmm. Garage. They, any mechanic will say this car, this engine is the best engine ever made. It never, ever, ever breaks. So that's why I'm picking this one. It's my favorite because, you know, something that didn't get appreciated, but that engine would go forever and the quality of this car was great. And I'm sure I'm, I'm sorry it wasn't as appreciated as much as it should have been. Hey, Steve, didn't they put this V6 in a lot of the Willys? Some of the Jeeps that have, don't they have Buick V6s? Some of those Jeeps? I don't know. Adams, do you know? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm almost, you can see talk about this engine uh, being like the engine that just never, that just runs forever. You think of this car as being driven by old people, but I I read a story about a guy, his job was to drive around the country, going to different auctions and buying something for, it was some kind of industrial thing. And he said he would just go through these and he, he wouldn't trade them in because he was, because they broke down. He traded them because he wanted a newer model. He said he specifically would get this V6 Buick because they never, ever broke. And they got good gas mileage too. So Adams, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm going to say something like, like, you know, when you first sent it, I thought, what did Steve think? Because I knew you thought it through, and of course you supported it beautifully. But as I look at this car, and yeah, I didn't give him a second glance in traffic, but as I look at that photo, it strikes me how European it looks. It doesn't have one bit of extra ornamentation or gigaw or useless chrome hanging off of it, like so many American cars of the day. And I think that's where America stepped off the track. And I know I comment on styling maybe a little bit too much, but that's the first thing that draws you to do I want that or could I be seen in that thing? And that is a very handsome car. And uh, save for the hood badge, if you told me that was an infinity uh, styling exercise or possibly even uh, Jaguar or sort of Audi-esque uh, minus the grill, it, it's got the look. And, and, and I like it better than I've ever liked it right now. Yeah, the problem was that uh, Lexus and then the upstart uh, Audi were coming out with much nicer interiors, and the Buick interior just couldn't compete. So, all right, Ada, or uh, Stefan, tell us, tell us your favorite. All right, well, my favorite is go. the Buick, the GNX. But, but I'm going to, you know, we already talked about it, but I'm going to have to go over here to give you my second choice. Let me give you my, which since we already talked too much, just hold on with me, listeners. Um, here it is. Uh, the so Adams showed a picture Ooh, of wow. the, you sort the, of threw me there. Yeah, good this one. is the '65 Buick Riviera Grand Sport that had the headlights where it the the front of the radiator the would just flip down and the headlights came out, so it had the concealed headlights. And when I see this car, it's a little bit angular, 
But man, you take uh, take one of these and and little resto rod it. Golly, this thing is this thing just to me exudes sixty five little bit of muscle, some elegance. It's got wire wheels. It's just man, it is. And it, this one had the the super wildcat V eight seven liter displacement. Um, I just <laughs> think this car or something. <laughs> I this would this would I mean this is really it. This is what I you know this is this would be more affordable than a GNX right now, but I think yeah. this thing is just cool. I think that's a great pick, and I think they call that version of the Hideaway Light because it was so different. They called it clamshell because I think so it was clamshell. Yes, mm, yeah, it was just just right. so sexy. Yep, this is a Mad Men uh, classy. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's that's a good one. Yeah, that's beautiful, Adams. All right, what do you got? Okay, well, I I, I flirted around with almost a modern car with the 2012 Regal GS, which of course is an Opal underneath. So I couldn't do that because we're talking about an American brand. And then I looked at the GNX, which we've talked about. So I'm going to go with my second pick as well, the 1970 Buick Stage One. Uh, this, oh yeah, yeah. Did, did you send me a picture of that adams i did indeed i think it showed up on there i think it was it's a, it's a yellow car ah uh, yeah okay here we go i think the i think i've got it i think i've i think i found it here let me make sure and it's a it's a car that'll do yellow right you know this is the days when uh there you go there you when, go the grand grand sport is what the gs stands for that's that's right and if you and if you go up let's see where are you um yeah, there you go. This was just a, you know, a big ground pounding 455 cubic inch motor. And back in the day, you know, the Pontiac 455 was different. The Chevrolet 454 was different. This this motor, you know, we're talking about motor weight a minute ago, was 150 pounds lighter than the 426 Hemi and the Chevrolet 454. Mm. But it, uh, it produced a mere 360 horsepower wink wink to yeah. your insurance man because it was really close to about 440 and it had 530 foot pounds of torque <laughs> so you could just peel up the pavement with it and i mean look at that you know with the little uh uh the, the air intakes folks what we're looking at is the gs uh, 455 motor in there and it sits kind of low in the in the body so when the hood which does not have big old hood scoops sticking up but it's got air intakes that the 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 twin nostrils sort of press on those air intakes for shaker. That's a shaker hood. hood. Yeah, it, yeah. Hood. It, it's made it up to the intake, and it just—I don't know. They 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 basically left the interior largely alone, except for a kind of sporty steering wheel and maybe a gauge or two. But that was a rare car. A friend of mine in college had a stage one that he uh, promptly put through a brick wall. Didn't get didn't get hurt. That's what drinking will do to you. Uh, walked away from it, but it was orbit orange and it was good looking as anything. And I rode in it one time with him and that was all I needed. Uh, nonetheless, this was a cool muscle car of its day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. All righty. Well, that's it for our homage to uh, Buick. I guess we'll call it a eulogy, just like, just like Jaguar. They're not dead yet, but they're probably zombies. So all right, we're out of time, but Stefan closed us out, and uh, that was fun, guys. Thanks. Hey, thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. Remember to like, listen, subscribe. Hit that bell if you're on YouTube, and we'll see you next week.